seat. You know, one of the things that we sometimes hear people say in our culture is something like this, I love Jesus, but not the church. Now, I sort of get that, right? Because Jesus is pretty easy to love. You've got somebody who's talking about kindness and love for others, doing good things. All that makes Jesus fairly easy to love, while the church is made up of imperfect people who sometimes do stuff that hurts others, say things that hurts others. I know I've done it. Lots of us will admit, hey, the church is imperfect. And it just might be that you're here today even though you've been hurt by the church in the past. And maybe you're here today on this Easter Sunday and it could even be a little hard to come in this room because of stuff that's happened in your past. And all I can say is I'm really glad that you chose to be here on this Easter Sunday morning, that you chose to make worship part of this day. And I hope that there's something meaningful that happens because you chose to be here on this day. Now, even though the church is imperfect, what I found is that when the church is at its best, it's because it's when the church is most like Jesus, right? I mean, when the church is at its very best, it's because the church is helping those who are in need. It's feeding the poor. It's taking care of widows and orphans. When the church is doing that, it is a lot like Jesus. And so for the past 50 days, we as a church have been looking at the life of Jesus. We've been reading through the Gospel of John together. So We've taken 50 days and read along, and through that 50 days, we've gotten through the whole gospel. I've been teaching on this on Sundays, and let me encourage you, even if you haven't been with us, take up the gospel of John. It's a great place to start if you don't know a lot about Jesus, and you can listen along to some of those messages if you like on our website, but the point is to hear these stories to allow the, the power of the stories of what Jesus said and what he did speak into your life so that you know this Jesus. And it's our hope that as we've done this, we as a church have gotten to know Jesus better. And beyond that, we've become more like him so that we can be an even better church in the eyes of Christ because we're like Christ. Now, as we think about that and think about studying Jesus, as we think about his presence in our lives, you know, one of the things that some people might ask is, does that, does that stuff really matter anymore? I mean, does, does this whole story of Jesus make that much difference in our lives 20 centuries after it happened, right? I mean, not many of us can name a whole lot of people who lived in the first century if they don't show up in the Bible and yet we keep going back to the story of Jesus. In our culture, lots of things have a pretty short shelf life, right? I mean, fashion comes and goes. How many times have Crocs come in and gone out and come back in, right? Ideas that may be really popular right now, 10 years from now, nobody's paying attention to. Songs that we're listening to today, a few months from now, we may have forgotten. Everything has a really short shelf life, and yet, 2,000 years later, we're still reading and studying the stories of Jesus. Why is that? Well, today I want us to think about that because I think John wanted us to understand that. He wrote so that the people who read this gospel, this writing about Jesus, would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He wanted people who read the gospel, whether they were in his own time or later, he wanted us to know why Jesus matters. 
And I think it all comes to its culmination in John chapter 20. Everything that he said before that, all Jesus' teaching, all the signs that he has performed that have pointed to who he is, lead up to John chapter 20. Now, where we find ourselves in John 20 is Jesus is in the grave. Okay? In the chapters that precede, Jesus has gone on trial before the Jewish authorities. He's gone on trial before the Roman authorities. He's been sentenced to death. He's been put on the cross. He died there. And after he was taken down, he was buried in a hurry by some friends because it's almost sundown and it's the day before the, uh, day before the Sabbath, so you can't do any work on the Sabbath. It had to be done right then. So it was a rush job to get Jesus into this borrowed tomb. And that's where things are on Sunday morning. His disciples have waded through that horrible Saturday where it seemed like everything that they had counted on was over, and now... Sunday morning has come, and John tells us at the beginning of the chapter, it's still night. Now, we've talked a little bit about the interplay between light and darkness. John uses that in his gospel. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night to find out more about him. Judas walks away from the table, and, and, and John tells us that it's night. And now, as John chapter 20 begins, it's still dark, but the light's just about to come. The story begins like this, John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, it seems that Mary may not have been alone. Some of the other gospels show us there's some people with her. But what we do know is that Mary went to the tomb very early, maybe to grieve, maybe to further prepare Jesus' body for burial. But when she got there, it was not as she expected. Because the cave, the, the tomb was probably a cave, and a very large stone would have been sort of rolled in front of that to seal it up, and it would have taken several really strong men to move that stone out of the way. When she got there, it's not in front of the tomb. And she makes a, well, she, she assumes something about what's going on. She assumes that, that because the stone's been moved, Jesus' body has been stolen. Now, here's Mary Magdalene, a woman with a questionable past, probably not the greatest reputation, a woman who has been taken advantage of, and, and Jesus may have been the first person to really notice her as a real human being, as a, as a person who matters. And the Romans have executed him in the most painful and humiliating way possible, and she's afraid that to further humiliate him, they have come and taken his body out of that tomb in order to desecrate Jesus' dead body. That's what she thinks is going on. Because the stone is not there. And so she runs back to Jesus' disciples. And first she comes to, to Peter, and then the disciple that John keeps calling the one that Jesus loved, who is probably John himself. So he's writing this, and he just doesn't call himself by name. And Peter and John take off running to the tomb. And one of the things I think is awesome about this story is that John makes sure we know he is a faster runner than Peter. Okay, He gets there first. There's a little competition there. John gets there, and he looks into the tomb, and this is what we read in verse 5, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Now, John makes a, a big deal about these strips of linen. And we go, 
what is that all about? Why, why does that even matter? And what we've got going on here is that it was Jewish custom in the ancient world to take strips of cloth and you, you wrapped it around the body of the person who had died. And you wrapped it pretty tightly. So this is all about grave clothes, okay? And, and even from the beginning of this, John wants us to know that when he looked in the tomb, they were still there. Why does he tell us that? Well, he's making a point. Here's part of the point. If it really were a grave robbery, the people who robbed the tomb would have been in and out. They wouldn't have taken the time to unwind all that cloth from the body of Jesus and leave it laying there. Now, he carries that a little bit further as we continue into verse 6. He said, then Simon Peter. Peter comes up. He's still running, huffing and puffing. Simon Peter came along behind him, behind John, and went straight into the tomb. As always, Peter is impulsive. He's going to take on whatever's in the way. He saw the strips of linen, there they are again, lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So John is, keeps coming back to this. Why is it such a big deal? I think he's actually trying to make three points as he describes this. Number one, the tomb is empty, right? Jesus' body is not there. That's really important, okay? The, the tomb is empty. The early Christian writers in the Bible, and after that, we'll keep coming back to that. Really, no one in the ancient world disputes that. The tomb's empty. Number two, this does not look like a grave robbery. The tomb's empty, but it's not because someone stole the body. It's almost as if Jesus' body has been lifted out of these grave clothes and they're still there. It's all too neat and tidy for someone to have stolen the body. Number three, if you've been reading along in the Gospel of John, you'll remember that John tells us that Jesus performed seven signs. The last of those seven signs is that he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And when you hear about those strips of linen, what you may think of is when Jesus said, roll the stone away, and they did four days after Lazarus died. And he called Lazarus out of the grave. He came out with all those strips of linen still wrapped around him. Because they're wound so tight, it would have been difficult for a person to get out. Most people didn't, right? Because they're dead. So that's just the way it was. But what John is saying is the tomb's empty. It's not a robbery, and this is different from Lazarus. Yes, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Lazarus died again. His body was, was brought back to life, but he still aged, still got sick, still died. But Jesus' resurrection is of a different order. This is something different entirely. And John wants us to know that from the outset of the story that this is not the same thing and that Jesus' body has not been stolen. And so he makes that very clear. Then verse 8, we come back to John. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just another reminder, he's a better runner, also went inside. And then this key line, he saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. He saw and believed. It's a key line. John really seems to be the first person who gets it. Who sees that, that Jesus has actually been 
raised from the dead. He, he sees all this. It's not a robbery. The body's not there. Jesus has actually been raised from... You know, he talked about that at that last meal. He said it over and over. We didn't get it. Now it all becomes clear to John. Jesus has actually... He's come back to life. And John believes this. And John keeps telling us that he's writing for a purpose that we would believe the same things. Now, Peter and John left. And that left Mary Magdalene at the tomb. So there she is still. She's not come to that same point that John has, that she believes Jesus has been raised from the dead. She's still grappling with, have they stolen the body? Have the Romans decided to do even worse than they've done before? And just to tear Jesus' memory apart. Finally, she decides to look into the tomb herself. And we pick that up in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, my guess is, when ancient Jews read John's Gospel and they read that verse they immediately thought back to the Old Testament. Because, get this picture in your head. You've got a, a, a cave, and out of the rock wall is sort of carved a ledge where you put the body, and you've got an angel at the head and an angel at the foot. When they heard that, their minds would have gone back to the Old Testament, to the temple. Now, the temple had courtyards, but really it was all about the main building, and the main building was divided into two rooms. The holy place... And then a smaller room called the Most Holy Place. And into that room, the priest went, the high priest went, only one time a year. One person got to go in that room one time a year. It was the Most Holy Place. In that room, there were several different sacred objects. It was, it was really seen as the intersection of heaven and earth. It was, it was God's dwelling place on earth. And one of the things in that tomb, I mean in that place, in the holy, most holy place, was the Ark of the Covenant, which is just basically a long box. And in that box were Aaron's rod, the stone tablets that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And at the either end of this box were carved cherubs, and gold had been hammered on those cherubs to make them appear as though they were made of gold. And that box was seen as God's throne. Like that box was the most holy object on the face of the earth. And when John describes this ledge in a borrowed tomb with an angel at its head and an angel at its foot, it's as if John is saying, you can have your temple. Do whatever you want with it. This right here, this is the most holy place that's ever been. Because this is the spot at which Jesus was raised from the dead. But Mary didn't get that yet. She sees these two angels and they have a question for her. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? She's still confused. They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And John tells us at that moment, she, she turned around. 
And she found herself face to face with a man that she assumes is the gardener because this tomb is in a garden. But what John also tells us is that even though she didn't recognize him, she was face to face with Jesus. And that's something that runs through the, the resurrection stories of Jesus is that people don't, they don't know him at first. There is something different about Jesus. Lazarus, when he was raised, he was still Lazarus. Everybody knew that. But it takes everybody a minute when they see Jesus. Jesus is raised in such a way that something has changed about this man. He is different from what he was before. And he speaks to her. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She still thinks that the tomb has been robbed. Now, much earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd. And he says he knows his sheep by name, and when he calls them, they will know his voice. And I think we see that fulfilled in the next verse. Verse 16 says, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, the language that they both spoke, Rabboni, which means teacher. The good shepherd knows a sheep, and the sheep know the good shepherd. When Jesus calls her by name, immediately she knows this is Jesus. And then one more key verse in this text. Mary Magdalene, woman of questionable reputation, went to, the, went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. You know, in the ancient world, the testimony of a woman was not seen as reliable in court. Couldn't be given in court. Woman could not serve as a witness. Too emotional, too unreliable. Can't depend on them. Who does Jesus choose to be the first person who sees him alive? It's Mary Magdalene. A woman, a sinner, a person of questionable reputation, but a person totally sold out on who Jesus is and what he's all about. She's the one to tell everyone, I've seen Jesus. But back to our question, what does it matter? What matters is Jesus is completely unique in the history of the world. Jesus is the only person raised from the dead never to die again. And it just shows us I think we've said all the way through that Jesus is, is lots of things. John wants us to know that Jesus is used by God for so many things. But here we see that, that Jesus is God's way of giving us what we need the most. On Friday, in our Good Friday service, I talked about the meaning of the cross and how the cross is, is God's way of, of dealing with our sin problem, and our sin problem leads to death. But you know, if Jesus had just died on the cross, and that was the end of the story, then it was either a fake or he failed. One of the two. 
But since he was raised from the dead, it proves that that Jesus could keep his promises, that he actually could deal with our death problem, which was caused by our sin problem. So he actually could forgive sins, and because he's been raised from the dead, we know that he can deal with the death problem for good. It's over. So the very things that cause us the most trouble, our sin, which causes us our guilt and our separation from God, our death, which ends life, Those things that trouble us the most, Jesus has dealt with. And so we're left to it with a decision. What am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this this set of facts that says Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, because he was raised from the dead? What do we do do with that? Maybe you... Maybe you find it all a little hard to believe. Because in your experience, when people die, they're dead. And that's the end. It is sometimes hard to believe. It's hard to put our trust in life that it really can come back. But you know, for me, it's a little bit like this time of year. Maybe even where we were like just two weeks ago. It's so cold and so wet, and so dead everywhere we look. Like every year, I sort of wonder to myself, can it really ever get warm again? I mean, is it really ever going to be summer? Could that actually happen? Because it doesn't feel like it can. It feels like we're stuck in death. But every year, The life comes back. And that's what Jesus is promising. Life comes back. And it comes back because of him. Because he came back. And because he will return. And because he will raise us from the dead too. Not like Lazarus. Like him. Like Jesus. For good. And then we have to decide how we're going to deal with this. Scripture says we respond in faith. We believe what Jesus said about himself. We respond in repentance, which means we say, you know what? I know the life I'm living, this life of sin, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. It's a dead end. And I want to live a different way, and so I'm going to. And we respond in baptism. And if you're ready to do that, man, I'd love to talk with you after this service, or you could email me, give me a call during the week. I'd be glad to sit down and walk through those steps in more detail. But but let me also point you to next week, because next Sunday we begin a new series of lessons that is designed to follow this one. So if you've been grappling with the story of Jesus, we're going to talk about what's your next step. And we're going to think about the things that we do to respond to who Jesus is. So I just encourage you to come back next week and we'll think about those ways that we respond to a risen Jesus. But for today, what I want us to remember is that Jesus is God's way of giving us the things we need the most. Let's pray together. We are so thankful for a risen Jesus. The promise of life promise of resurrection, of forgiveness, of of life eternal.
You know, we celebrate that as we sing. We celebrate that in life. We celebrate that as we respond to you. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.